God gets us. God gets you. God gets me. It's a good thing because he's probably the only one that really does. Such a great series. So many great um, truths coming out of that, and it's just been impacting on me. And and even as Pastor Dave said last week, this isn't a self-help series where we try to kind of you know look within ourselves to be to find wholeness no this is this is about life transformation this is about god transforming us from the inside out because of who he is by his word and thank you pastor dave for giving me the opportunity this morning to to share and to to bring his word and to wrap up this series up with uh, he gets our frustration he gets our frustration we live in an interesting time in history, like, like no other, and that's the way it always is, whatever the present is, but we've never been better informed, and yet it seems like we appear to be more and more ignorant of the facts than ever, right? There's, there's more information out there. There's, we have so many advancements in technology, medicine, communication, and yet at times I ask myself when I look around, it's like, Really? You know, like there's those moments when you're kind of like, really? Is that, is that really what we've become? The, the, the constant bombardment of unfiltered data that just comes our way and informations and opinions, it, it's left us with an, an enormous amount of information. But that has its downside. It's, it's information, but sometimes it's, it's just an absolute deluge. Have you noticed how volatile people are today. It seems that, you know, the weather, weather patterns are getting more extreme. Yeah, so, so are people's reaction to life. It's like, it just seems like, I mean, road rage is a real thing, um, which it shouldn't be. I mean, outrage, violence, so many things that you look at the media and, and you think, man, this world is off the rails. There's so many things happening. And it seems that the, the, I'll say social media, the news, all these different things that are coming at us kind of keep us on this brink of a boiling point when it brings different ideas. And this, it, people seem to be more and more frustrated, more and more, uh, the way things are going, they're thinking is like the frustration comes with that. And we become more polarized as we find more and more people that are just about as, they're just as frustrated about the same things as we are. And, and the internet uses algorithms to keep feeding us the same information of people that agree with us, and it just kind of keeps climbing and boiling and getting hotter. I mean, think of different things you can use in this example. I mean, COVID's been blamed for everything, so why not go there? Think, think of COVID, you know, like, Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Do you get vaccinated? Do you not get vaccinated? Is this conspiracy theory or is it real? Like, is this a plot? All these different things. And it has, even within families at times, it's like put people at odds with each other and people get so frustrated. And then as long as there's, you know, Facebook and internet, anybody that's got an opinion has a platform. So it's all out there. Think of it, and it's not just COVID. It's religion. It's politics. It's politics. It's sexuality, parenting, the weather, right? There's, I dare say that there are enough differing opinions in this room from things of important, from not at all important, to, to life and death. 
there's enough differing opinions in this room to start a baby war. Right? And, and we can get so passionate about it and we can get so frustrated by it. It's just the way it is. I said this this morning, I'm going to say it again. And I'm stealing this. I don't know who said it first. But we really have to get to the point where we remember that just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I hate you. Mm. There, you can take that home and that's, we're done. That's good for the day. I mean, recently there was a, a CBC News article that uh, highlighted the, it was like this look within the fundamentalist church in Canada and the effect that it's having and different things. And that was a, as I read it, I was like just, it was disheartening on many levels just because of the way, again, it fueled disunity. It fueled within the church, both opinions being against each other and outside of the church. And we need to know what we stand for. I'm not saying that, there's, there's truth. But the sense of frustration both in the world and, and everywhere. It's, it can be so many different perspectives, and perspective is good. But we can have frustration within the church as well. It's not just us and them, because it really shouldn't be us and them. I was recently having a conversation about church and, and um, how we tend to have this expectation, and it's like, I get it. We have this expectation that, that church should be a place where everybody gets along, everybody agrees, there's unity, you know, brotherly love for all, it's all roses and flowers, and, and it's, and yeah, but I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but people are people, and Christian people are still people. Sometimes, I dare say, even more so. And so, like, within the, the life of the church, there's opportunity to be disappointed, as long as there's two people in the room, there's an opportunity for conflict. And, 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 so, and when we get disappointed, when we get hurt, when we get let down, and when we get frustrated, sometimes it just eats us up and we become disillusioned and we just don't know what to do. So what do we do with our frustration? What do we do with that? I know, I know. It's like you're thinking, that's a great start to the message, Glenn. So uplifting. I am so glad that I took an hour out of my busy weekend to be so cheered up and encouraged by what you're saying. <laughs> okay. But if what I'm saying is true, if we live with that level of frustration, if we face challenges of frustration in our culture, of frustration in our church, if we're frustrated with ourselves, then how are we as Christians meant to live in such a society or even in the context of hope, new hope? How do we, how do we deal with this? I mean, the frustration is real, I believe. I have felt it. I've lived with it. Is there any direction found in Scripture? Is there anything? How can a collection of writings written some 2,000 years ago, you know, when an iPad was a stone and a chisel, they, they weren't as fragile. Um, <laughs> unless you're Moses. Anyway, sorry, sidetrack. Focus, Glenn, focus. I got a lot to say and a little time to do it. This, how, like, something written 2,000 years ago, how does it apply to our advanced society, our culture now, what we are facing now? I'm glad you asked, <laughs> even if I put those words in your mouth. Let's, let's think about this for a second. 
The land of Israel, okay, back in the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was, was a political and religious pressure cooker. It was, it was on the verge of boiling over at any time. The Romans were, the, the Israel was living under the oppression of the Roman conquerors, and so they were, they were cohabitating, but not well, right? The, the Jewish people, they lived with this messianic hope, this, this belief that a Messiah was coming. The prophets had foretold that this chosen people, and they'd been hundreds of years and generations living in oppression, they were frustrated. They were frustrated with their condition. They were frustrated that they were overthrown. And then you throw the Roman occupation on top of that because you throw in some, some religious zealots from the Jewish, you know, these guys that were like, we're going to take back the, our territory. We're promised. We're of God. We've got blah, blah, blah. And say so they take up swords and they want to come. Well, Rome responds by crucifying a bunch of them and giving them more taxes, adding fire to the whole situation, right? Becoming even more volatile. And then you've got the religious leaders and how th what was being taught in the law. Think of the interaction between Israel, the Jews, and Gentiles, right? Gentiles were unclean. They were, and, and here they were trying to live in the same space. You know, they're unclean. Don't touch them. Don't eat with them. Don't, don't make friends with them or you will be defiled. And then there's the Samaritans. Well, don't even get me started on the Samaritans. I've got like a few minutes. So I, I, but su suffice it to say, frustration was high. Outrage was a very common response. That's the society, that's the context that Jesus grew up in from a boy and carried out his ministry when he, when he was in his 30s, when he started and when he did his ministry in that area. That's pretty intense, but that's the context. And think about his, think about his disciples for a moment. I like to, I like to try to take the rose-colored glasses off when I when I read the Bible, and when I'm reading about, you know, the people that Jesus chose as his twelve. We start with some fishermen. Anybody spent any time on the wharf? Yeah, a pretty rough bunch around the edges, right? So this, he's got some fishermen. Then he grabs a tax collector a zealot, a doubter. Like, the collection of people was a recipe for frustration, right? I mean, we think of it as like, why didn't he choose? Well, it's encouraging to me, right? If, if God can use or can choose Matthew, or if God can choose Peter, or if God can choose any, like, right? Then maybe, just maybe, I could be in the running as well. Yeah, thank you, Lord, and thank you, Poppy, for laughing at that. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus had opportunity for frustration, so Jesus gets our frustration. He gets us, and so if Jesus can speak to that, if he can speak to the twelve, he can speak to the twelves. I believe that his word can speak to us this morning. That's my introduction. Wow. <laughs> okay. I think it's a good time for me to stop and pray. God, we thank you um, that you get us. Lord, you absolutely get us. You get our frustration. You get our anger sometimes. You get the things that we, that we do. You, you understand us, Lord, and you love us. 
And God, I believe you have truth to impart to us this morning. And Lord, I just pray that you would guard hearts this morning, Lord, from offense. Lord, I just pray that, that anything that I say, God, that you would protect it, help me to present it in such a way that it, it speaks to people's hearts and is life-changing, God, because of what your Holy Spirit does with it. So God, I just commit these words to you and just pray, God, touch our hearts. Help us to receive what you're saying today. And uh, yeah, help us to leave here changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we think about our passage today, it's going to be from, from Matthew. When G- as Jesus' notoriety grew, so did the size of the crowds. right? So there was people gathering around him, and the crowds got bigger. And in Matthew, as we look at it, the book of Matthew, there's these com- these collection of teachings that he did in Matthew chapter 5, often called the Sermon on the Mount. And part of that is really addressing, if you think about it, the crowds that gathered, he's, tr- he's addressing them with a very counterculture to what they would have been expecting him to teach. It's this, it, it's part of what was fueling the fire in that culture was how the law what the the teachers, the Pharisees, and all those guys were teaching, how that was being applied, and what it looked like in the context of where they were living. The way the leaders handled it was actually fueling the fire. And Jesus challenged that big time. And rather than beating people over the head and discouraging people with the law, he taught a better way. But brace yourselves. Put on your seatbelts, because his better way is a right hook if I've ever seen it. Let's read it in Matthew chapter 5 and let the word speak for itself. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. And this is from the New Living Translation. You have heard the law that says, the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give them your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles, give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Okay, so this is, he's talking to this guy, he's like, wait, wait, what? What are you saying, Jesus? Can you imagine being in that crowd? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I don't know about you. but if someone here was offended with something that I said and they walked up and gave me a good slap across the cheek, my reaction probably is not going to be, oh, here's the other one. <laughs> Just saying, okay? I'm not a violent man, but my, my reaction, I doubt, would be as gracious as what Jesus was saying here. At the time of Moses, when the Old Testament law was written, a little context, this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth with tooth was actually an improvement on the barbaric way that they did things, right? This is the idea of you don't, you don't kill somebody for, for stealing something from you. Like, that's what he's saying, the crime matches, the punishment matches the crime. And, and that's well and good, but what Jesus is saying, he, hey, there's, there's a better way. Because people were reversing it to mean, well, you took mine, I'll take yours. You broke mine, I'll break yours. And there was a very retaliatory emphasis on 
you know, you better watch out, you do something to me, I'm gonna do something back. And you can see how that escalates. Jesus, he turns it on his head and he says, turn the other cheek, offer grace, offer mercy. You're like, wow, yeah. Some, some scholars would suggest that strike a pers- striking the person on the right cheek, the way it's, it's described here, is a typically, like it's kind of a backhander from a typically right-handed aggressor and characteristic of a Jewish form of insult. Do you know what I mean? Like it's more or less like, you know, the, the white glove. I challenge you to a duel. Not, like that idea that, that it's an insult. Like, so you could take it, it's not necessarily saying that you subject yourself to violence and, and harm and so on like that, although that does happen, but it's this idea of, Again, retaliation, one, you don't heap insult on top of insult, you're just willing, if someone insults you, rather than coming back with an insult, well, be prepared to maybe take another one and just let it go, let it roll off, water off a duck's back. In our human nature, in my human nature, I tend towards an eye for an eye. I want justice. You break mine, I break yours. And when we don't get the justice that we feel that we are entitled to, we get frustrated. We get angry. We tend to react. And in worst cases, we get outraged. We we lose it. We lose the plot. What Jesus is teaching here is counterculture. And let's be real for a minute. It goes against our natural inclination. It goes against our human nature. Especially when we are already frustrated with the th- that things are not the way we think they should be. I look around my world and I go, mm, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Right? We know that. We look around and we see things. We see injustices. We th- and know that things are not the way they should be in our world. And it, mm, it's, it's easy to get angry. There's a James, Jesus' brother, writes this um, in James chapter 1. There's a verse. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Slow to speak, slow to get angry. Our anger doesn't produce righteousness. Turn the other cheek. Okay, that's a good point. Turn the other cheek. Very good. Then it says, give your shirt and your coat and if you lose in court. Well, that's pretty straightforward, but it seems just as unreasonable. You mean I lost my shirt and now you want me to give me your coat too? It's like, what's next, Jesus? Well, next, go the extra mile. <laughs> go the extra mile. The law was if a Roman soldier asked a civilian, said, hey, carry my pack. They were obligated to carry that pack for a mile. That was just the way that it was. They were, again, oppressed people. That was, that was the standard. They could ask them to carry it a mile. Jesus says, take it too. Take it too. This, this unruly Roman wants me to carry his pack because he's too lazy to carry it. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. It sounds like we lose, right? It, so, it sounds like it's a sacrifice on our part. Where's the upside here? Where does this get better? <laughs> the Bible offers beautiful paradoxes, doesn't it? You win by surrendering. You respond to mistreatment with service. Matthew says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for me, you will find it. I mean, it's backwards. God's kingdom is on its head. And it's, and it's, it's, it's tough. Turn the other cheek. 
give your shirt, go above and beyond. Being a follower of Jesus means to choose kindness over retaliation, generosity over selfishness, and going the extra mile over living small. We need to show the world by our lives and share with the world with our lips the Jesus of the New Testament and what he was like and who he was and what he stood for. This Jesus did not retaliate with outrage when he was rejected, but with his words, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. That's tough. That's not something you can simply turn on or turn off in your own strength. That's going to require more than just a motivational speech. (laughs) That's going to take more than a New Year's resolution that says, I'm going to be a kinder and bigger person. And in the next verse, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, literally. So i got a lot to cover here, so let's dive in. You have heard the law that says, so this is Matthew 5, 43. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way you will be acting as true children of our Father in heaven for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. Really? If you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, and perfect here means mature or fully developed. You are to be mature, fully developed, even as your Father in heaven is. The greatest commandment found in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And we're like, yeah, I can do that, or I can try to do that. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The entire law, everything they were trying to live up to, that the Pharisees were teaching, all this stuff, it kind of, it's all encapsulated in loving God and loving each other. Loving God and loving each other. That's the heart of the matter. You can't respond correctly if we don't get this right. If we don't love God, and I believe that's where we start, we love God and then we love each other and there's, there's a transaction that takes, the, takes place there. Um, in the American, uh, New American Commentary, Craig Bloomberg says, The true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate or who mistreat or persecute them. Say amen or ouch, ouch. The test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate. So so Jesus sets up this contrast in these passages between the way of the world, retaliation, and and the way of his kingdom. And the way of the kingdom is radical, praying for enemies, showing kindness to those who mistreat us, loving those who are most inclined to hate. I don't know about you, but what Jesus is teaching here is more than my selfish heart can handle. What he's teaching here is is more than I can do in myself. My selfish heart cannot do what Jesus is asking to be done. I don't have it in myself to do that. 
I hope that encourages you because I think we need to recognize that. It's like Pastor Dave was saying last, last week about, you know, this isn't about self-help. This is about God help. And so in ourselves, we can try to curb our reactions to injustice, and we should, but in our own strength, we're going to fall short. It requires a change of heart, the power of God at work in us. It's got to be more than just ourselves, people. We cannot do it in ourselves. We just get more frustrated. Jesus told his disciples that he must go away. When he was crucified, he was telling us, like, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going back to the Father, but, but I'm sending a helper, a comforter, a strength to come to you and to give you what I can't give in your presence as a person. Power of your Holy Spirit. There's a passage in Galatians that contrasts the fruit of our sinful natures, ourselves, and the fruit of the Spirit. What these two produce is very different. And I want to just kind of run this past you real quick. Galatians chapter 5 says this. So I say, this is Paul talking to the church in Galatia, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite to what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. There is no law against these things. These two commandments, all the law and the prophets, hang on these two things. Love God, love people. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, kindness. I got it. Anyway, you heard them the first time. There's no law against these things. I want to use an agriculture example. I want to use an agricultural example for you, as Jesus often did, fruit, producing fruit. Julie and I right now are doing a little gardening, and so far it's not going well, but it's fine. <laughs> but fruit doesn't happen just instantly or automatically, or fruit doesn't just happen. The plant needs to be in the correct environment, proper cultivation, water, soil, exposure to the sun to produce fruit. And it takes time. Now, I want you to think about the fruit of the Spirit that I talked about. Love, joy, peace, patience, those things. The fruit of the Spirit isn't something that just instantly drops. It's not something that's like, can even that is quick a lot of times. The fruit of the Spirit requires proper cultivation. We actually have to be intentional about it and cultivate it in our lives. It takes the right environment. Places like this, a church that's full of faith, full of hope, full of truth, believing that God can transform our lives. A huddle. A, different things where we can get ourselves in the right environment to grow and to bear fruit. Exposure to the sun. S-O-N. Spending time with Jesus in prayer. The, the idea of the water of his word, the word of God, 
that we just allow to saturate our lives because if we don't know it, we can't apply it. And the idea of knowing his word and understanding seasons, you don't pick apples in January. God's timing, God produces things in our lives in time. There's a process. But are we willing to engage in that? When, we're, when we, you may be here today and you're frustrated. You, you may be here today and you're, you're, you know, you're frustrated with our culture and the world. You're just like, they, they've all lost it. And you're just frustrated with what you see. If I hear one more time, maybe, maybe it's in church life. You know, you've been disappointed. Something's happened and you're like, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And you're frustrated. Now, we've got a choice, and it ain't an easy one. But how do we react? How do we, how do we respond to those frustrations? What do we do with those? Do we just kind of let our human nature, our sinful nature, just run wild and, well, whatever it produces, it produces? Which is usually division, strife, anger, oh, just, you know the list. Or do I say, oh, God, help me? And with me, sometimes I'm frustrated with God. Ever been frustrated with God? Yeah. You're seeing something, or things turn out a certain way, it's like, wait a minute. I think it's okay to be frustrated with God. I haven't been hit by lightning yet. <laughs> but what do we do with those frustrations? This morning, can I encourage you, in the midst of the frustration, remember Jesus gets us. He gets our frustration. He knew we would be frustrated. And he makes a way for us to deal with it, to respond to it as he responded to it. We won't always get it right. But the way that is countercultural is the way of grace and mercy, the way of kindness, the way of generosity, the way of extra mile, a way that is impossible without his help. But with the Holy Spirit, God can give us the strength to respond as he would respond. And the impact of that, the ripple effect of responding as Jesus would respond is incredible. You really want to freak out somebody that's frustrated and angry? Respond with kindness. Respond with grace. Respond the way Jesus would respond. And it's like, yeah, it makes a difference. And we back that up with what we say and what we do. Not an easy message. I don't pretend to think it is. But I think for us today, in the world that we live in, it's an important one. That how we live, how we react, and how we respond is so important. Let me pray for you as the team comes back and we're going we're gonna to do some more worship. But God, I just pray, God, you know us. You get us. You understand where we're at. You know our hearts. You know how times we get frustrated and how hard that is to overcome. But Lord, this morning, I just pray just for a fresh sense of your presence, a fresh sense of you being with us and that your Holy Spirit is actually at work in us. That your Holy Spirit will give us the fruit that we need to see, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. God, I just pray that would be released over new hope. God, that we would have a voice in this community that's a voice that is counter to the culture that instead of frustration, we speak hope, that we speak grace, we speak mercy, we live it out 
And God, may it have an impact, God, because there's so many people that need something different than what they have. And I believe that different thing is you. So God, this morning, we just thank you for your word, and I just pray that it would bear much fruit in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.